Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, I am good. I am currently drowning in movies, um, wow. which is yeah good for our purposes <laughs> here to talk about. But yes, I had a brief conversation with you before we went on there. I am currently trying to catch up with everything that we want to talk about for the end of the year show, kind of catch up with what's been good or talked about this year but then also trying to complete um my viewing challenge which keen-eared listeners will remember we set ourselves in the very first couple of episodes of this year i'm trying to watch quite a lot of old films as well as watching quite a lot of new films so i'm sorry if you fall between the years of 1959 and 2019 i'm not interested in seeing you (laughs) right now so i'm very sorry so yeah, that's what I'm doing. And there's just too much. There's just too much going on. I can't. I can't concentrate. Yeah, and it can't really benefit a lot of the newer films that much for you to be going back and watching, you know, these classic movies that have stood the test of time, to then also be watching, you know, Dumbo. Hmm. Yeah. Or watching the new Dumbo, one, I should say, and then watching Dumbo. <laughs> yeah. Um. Because the new Dumbo certainly doesn't. I've forgotten it already. Hmm. As as has society. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder if, yeah, in a year where they released three live action versions of beloved animated films, that will be the the one that no one remembers or will no one ever remember them or will the time we've forgotten them, they'd have made them again as animated <laughs> films. Yeah. Do you think that will be the one they leave off Disney Plus? It'll be that and Song of the South, but for mildly different reasons. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's not terrible. It's just utterly yeah. pointless. Mm. It was just... Yeah, it just didn't seem to add. It's almost as if when you take, you know, a, a kind of like a bright and vibrant um, animated film and then make it photorealistic and put like live action people in it, it just loses a little bit of its spark. Although I do appreciate losing the racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that I'm not. And you can tell them this from me. I'm not a fan of that. No. Yeah, that's mm. well established on this show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're not doing any uh, news this week, for purely because uh, we just don't really have time. <laughs> we we talked about how, uh, you know, we, you and I are both very busy in our mm-hmm. jobs. We both are entering the busiest period of the year, so we haven't really got that much time. Although we did also spend like 40 minutes talking before this, so it didn't quite work out. So, But anyway, we will go uh, straight on to our main topic. And a few weeks ago, it was, it was your birthday, Matt. Uh, happy belated. Thank you. As is tradition on this show, if it's someone's birthday, they get to dictate the topic of the show. And so I'll pass it over to you to say what the uh, the topic is this week. Well, um, it's a nice one this week, but also a little bit of sweet because I, I'm sorry to say that I'll be leaving uh, this podcast at the end of the year. And it, with no kind of like bitterness or regret, I just hate Ed. Um, no sorry that's not true at all i love ed um it's just it's just my time we've we've done a long a long stretch and i i feel like now is the time to to kind of like have a step back and maybe have a break and maybe do something else but what i wanted to talk about with that in mind is kind of like a little reflection on how far we've come because we've been doing this for a long time and a lot of podcasts don't last this Mm -hmm. long um and we've been doing if 
our first show was the best of the year 2011, I believe, a stellar year. Mm. And here we are coming up to the best of the year in 2019. That's an eight-year stretch of, of, you know, some of it's been waffle, um, but some <laughs> of it's been quite good. But we've, I feel like we have presided over um, and, and kind of seen quite the, the sea change in, in the way that people... Um, engage with media and content and movies and television and how we absorb it and watch it and I just wanted to have a like a talk about what's changed and you know what are the significant developments that have happened in our lifespan Mm. and I kind of feel like that would be a good way to kind of look back on what we've done yeah absolutely I think the the main thing there's there's obviously there's been a bunch of stuff that's happened over the past decade uh, in in film specifically I think pol- politically things have been fairly calm and it's not <laughs> been any upheavals or anything but in terms of you know just like the last decade in film it really does feel like there's been a lot of seismic changes I was you know when you you suggested this topic I started like throwing my mind back to uh, 2011 and how you know, when I was watching movies then, when we started, like, the main way I watched movies were uh, in a cinema, because I worked in a cinema and I got to see them for free. (laughs) Um, But also, and then I quit that job because I was really unhappy, (laughs) Um, which, uh, for anyone who works at that cinema now, um, it's a fairly common story. But also, you know, I would uh, often rent movies from Blockbuster, which uh, doesn't exist anymore. There was a blockbuster on Eccleshall Road, which was always on my route home from work. So often mm-hmm. I would finish a, a shift and walk in and, you know, say hi to friend of the show, Colin Oakley, if he was working. And then, you know, pick like three movies, take them home, watch them, and then, you know, drop them off on my way back into work. Or I would watch them through Love Film, the uh, British equivalent to Netflix now, horribly overshadowed by them. And I think at that point... I had maybe watched one movie through a streaming service at that point, Mm -hmm. which was uh, the aforementioned love film. I watched the Adam Scott vehicle Talk, which was a uh, spin-off of the Fast and Furious franchise, um, which I only watched because I had heard him make jokes about it on Comedy Bang Bang, I think. And that was uh, crazy to me, the idea that you could watch a movie that just streams on your laptop and you could watch an entire feature film that way i thought that and you know now that's like how so many movies are made so many significant movies as well obviously the last couple of weeks have been dominated by discussion of the irishman and marriage story two big releases from netflix which has become this huge giant in the film and television world and it's it's hard to deny that the growth of streaming over the last eight years has had a huge impact like you say in how people engage with movies and how how those movies are released into the world mm. and it's it's weird that you should say about love film because love film was is now amazon prime they got bought oh, by yeah. amazon prime but i i do recall that um i was also a subscriber to love film and then when you would go on the website to manage your queue of movies that you wanted sent to you when all of a sudden some of them appeared to say available to watch now mm. that did seem to be yeah a real big shift because i was like well why would i wait two days for this to come in the post mm. um on a dvd that scratched to shit um <laughs> that you know or the wrong dvd I, or the wrong dvd 
I the very first film I got from Love Film uh, when I signed up for the obligatory free trial that I never ended. Uh, you know, now I've got an Amazon Prime membership. It looks like I never cancelled it. Was Revenge of the Sith because <laughs> I was so so uh, bummed out by the Star Wars prequels. I was like, I, I went to see the Phantom Menace at the cinema. I rented. Attack of the Clones on VHS, mm. and then I was like, "There's no way I'm paying for the last one." I, and then when I got it on a free trial, I was like, "Great!" And then I sent it back, and then the next film I asked for, they just sent me Revenge of the Sith again. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I don't know what they were trying to tell me, but yeah, that that is a very huge shift in the paradigm of of how we experience things. The idea that we have almost now gone full circle on the I can't believe I have to wait and watch it one episode a week to I want it all at once and I'm going to binge it in two or three sittings to the now I now desperately want a show I can watch once a week because binging is destroying my brain and my enjoyment and that's mm. the way that the you know the Netflix model of dumping it all at once and letting you plow through it at your own speed seems to be shifting back now towards weekly releasing Disney plus the latest kind of monolithic uh, streaming giant to launch which you know still hasn't arrived in Britain yet and won't for another kind of two or three months is releasing its big shows once a week and refusing to to kind of follow the Netflix model and it kind of looks like there's a really good response to that because I mean just on a from a technical standpoint if you want to talk about engagement with things there was a big study that came out and said you know the people talk about it longer when they've got a week to wait about uh, wait for it you know and mm. um, whereas like stranger things will come out and it, everyone will watch it in the first couple of days they'll talk about it for a couple of days and it'll be gone and then yeah. it's kind of slipped out of the public consciousness whereas it's baby yoda for weeks right now. <laughs> and yeah. yeah yeah i mean disney know what they're doing so you realize that you know when they take on a streaming service they're they're probably gonna they're, they're probably gonna know which what's going to work and what isn't and you know the netflix model i mean it is good sometimes to have a bunch of stuff i personally don't enjoy binging things there's too many shows that i binged and kind of didn't enjoy mm. didn't enjoy well didn't enjoy the fact that when i was having a conversation with someone about it i couldn't remember either the nuance or like you know they asked me about a particular season and i couldn't actually pick out what season was what because yeah. it all just merged into one because I was, you know, just scrabbling to get it finished as quickly as possible so I could say I'd seen it. And, yeah, I, I personally kind of enjoy... I actually enjoy, like, a midway point. Like, I seem to remember when my wife was watching Game of Thrones. She'd never seen it before. We would, like, watch a couple of episodes every yeah. couple, of, couple of days, maybe. So you've got enough time to absorb it. But then also, like, you can just say, oh, well, I'll watch the next one, you know. Mm. Um, but, you, yeah. You can't be, you can't be trusted with it all at once. I think that's bad. But you know, just the idea that now, you know, kind of bouncing off from that, we've seen a lot of discussion recently about the Irishman, um, the Netflix movie from Martin Scorsese. I believe many of you may have heard of it. But like when it came out, people were pushing back about how long it was, mm. whereas they would be perfectly happy to sit through Stranger Things in one sitting, but a three and a half hour movie is too long. And I had yeah. the same conversation with my my little cousin. She's 14. And, like, I recommended a movie to her. Um, it was, I think, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I thought she'd like it. And, you know, she definitely did when she watched it. But she complained about how long it was. But she will watch 
a season of Riverdale in one go. Mm. Or, you know, she she would just like plow through Brooklyn Nine-Nine like a season at a time in just like two or three sittings, which is mad. Um, and I don't know whether it's just because things are broken down into kind of chunks. You maybe don't have to concentrate on them for so long or you can go and do something else at half an hour or, you know, there is clearly defined chunks that you're watching. Um, mm. But people seem to be pushing back on a three and a half hour thing. And there was like a thing going around um, Twitter, which people get you caught a lot of shit. And like it was the you know, see there was like a, someone who'd broken down how you can watch it in four parts and like where to stop right. it and stuff. And like people were giving that guy a lot of shit. And like reading the comments and stuff, he was like, hey, I've got fucking two young kids, man. I ain't got time to watch this all in one go. This is a way that you can break it down into manageable chunks. I'm going to watch it in chunks no matter what. And this is just how I did it. So it would cause the least disruption. So like get off my case, which is fine. Like it's not like he's kind of asking the projectionist to stop in the fucking cinema and then come <laughs> back tomorrow. Um, like, yeah, but it's just weird that that there seems to be, I, I think we had a conversation that uh, quite a few years ago now, which was inspired by a um, television lecture given by Kevin Spacey, which we'll probably gloss over when he <laughs> delivered it. But it was a time yeah. when he was the, the figurehead for Netflix and House of Cards and things. And he was saying that, you know, if you give people content when they want it and allow them to engage with it how they want it, then they will appreciate it and they will uh, absorb it and and, you know, and relate to it in a, in a deeper way. And that kind of was true for a bit. Um, and then it's also now kind of created this world where people want it all now immediately. Um, or they kind of like push back on it quite hard. And it's bleeding over into films rather than just television, which is episodic. It's now bleeding over into, into films. Mm. I think I I also didn't really have a problem with that guy breaking it down into four parts. I thought that, you know, like the logic is is fine. Like not everyone is going to have the chance to go and, you know, go and see The Irishman in a cinema because it's only playing in small art house cinemas because most of the big chains refuse to show it. Um, because of the, they they don't like the fact that there's no theatrical window, obviously, or there 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 was one there. You could see it in cinemas like two weeks before it hit Netflix, which is how I I went to see it uh, initially. I went to the the Enzian here in in Orlando to go and watch it in the cinema, uh, and that was great. But it's also that's kind of a very privileged thing for me that I can think, you know, what I'm gonna take four you know four and a half hours out of my life because i have to go and watch the movie but also you know there's travel there's getting to the cinema there's finding a seat there's all this sort of i'm going to do that i'm going to sit and watch this movie in its entirety in a single sitting and you know a lot of people aren't gonna do that and you know the the advantage of netflix is you know people can watch it in their homes at their leisure and you know that is that may not be the ideal way to see it in terms of you know what scorsese wants and i would argue it's probably not ideal in terms of the the way the movie is structured it's all about the cumulative effect of seeing this guy's life uh, you know lead up to this point of this terrible betrayal and then having to see him sit with the aftermath of that that betrayal on you know every other aspect of his life and i think that seeing that in a single sitting is is the best way to do it to get the full emotional impact of that but at the same time if you're releasing it on netflix then you know the ideal conditions for it are completely out of your hands and it's all down to people's lives and watching it in four chunks to me seems as you know valid a way to watch it as you're going to a cinema and seeing it in a single 
a single sitting because that's just the the reality of how people will see it because and also you know like there are so many movies that people watch and, and there's so many beloved movies as well that people discover because they're watching them on television where they're broken up with ads and maybe like the language and the violence are toned down and I would not say that, you know, people who discovered the Terminator in a, like an edited version where all the swears are taking out are have got a less authentic relationship with that movie than someone who went to see it at like some sleazy grindhouse in 1984 or whatever. Mm, yeah. I think, do you still think there is a pervasive snobbery around Netflix? Because, I mean, Netflix... And Disney have been the two preoccupations of our of our last eight years. The I rise so. of the rise of both of those have been, you know, have, have, have taken up a lot of time for us to talk about. But you know, a few years ago when something premiered at Cannes, Netflix logo got booed. Um, <laughs> was it? It wasn't last year for Roma, was it? I'm sure it was before that. It, it very well might have been Roma because I I can't think of what. Or maybe it was. Do you think it was the um the Idris Elba one, the um, Beast of No Nation? Yeah, that feels like it could have been that one because that was like their first really big one that they kind of made a big push for at festivals and that they tried to get awards attention for. Because mm. I I wonder, are we seeing a gentle erosion of of that um snobbery and lack of acceptance of 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 content made by? streaming services such as netflix because there was it was a little bit like the wild west at one point wasn't it i seem to remember mm. us having a having a conversation saying well hang on the fucking playstation store has got an original movie coming out and, <laughs> you know there was there was lots of it was they had an original series with like charlito copley didn't they called powers do you remember that yes 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 yeah. i do remember um, that it was just like all these all these people were trying to get in on the streaming game and it seemed like a real yeah like i say like a real frontier and then it seems that now that uh, you've got uh, Netflix, Disney, Prime, and Apple TV, although they have got somewhat of a slippier foothold on the mountain, although they do have a kind of incomparable array of talent to um, kind of add to their roster, that like that it seems like a lot of the kind of smaller things are being kind of squeezed out, I guess, or incorporated into the bigger ones. So like Hulu and stuff is now part of Disney Plus, right? Yeah, it's still like its own separate service that you can have without Disney Plus assigned to it. But now that Disney are controlling stakeholders of it, then it it can be bundled in with that and ESPN. Mm. Uh, and they also get a lot of the stuff that is owned by Disney, um, but doesn't really fit into the Disney Plus brand ends up on there. So, for example, Disney now own FX because FX obviously was part of the Fox family of companies. And I'm not sure if if you know this, Matt, but um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's not really kid friendly. No, like, no, like I've heard. Yeah, or Atlanta doesn't really sit alongside Frozen. <laughs> so, like Hulu has kind of become the repository for all of their more adult orientated stuff that they just. And and that you know works as a dividing line for them because clearly Disney Plus has a very specific tone and brand that they are going for, and it would be kind of strange for them to suddenly mess that up by throwing on Archer onto, especially with Disney Plus because people think oh, like you know kids be like ooh cartoon yeah probably wouldn't work out too well for them 
Um, but yeah, so, so Hulu is part of Disney more broadly, but uh, it still exists as its own service for that reason. Mm. And yeah, we, we have reached the critical mass now. Of, uh, that's the other thing that's happened since in our, in our time is that peak TV kind of arrived and has... It's not gone anywhere. It's got worse. Mm. <laughs> it's got worse. It's gone. It's gone from the point of like, okay, isn't TV good now? To oh, hang on, isn't TV like better than film now? To there is too much TV to watch. To there is now, there is now actually too much TV to watch unless you're a television critic. To which there and even now then. we're yeah now we're at the point of like. There's now too much TV to watch if you're a human being. Yes, and like as you were saying about like smaller services, like there are some that still there are some that still exist, but their programming choices are bizarre. So, for example, like the two in recent history that I just kind of can't quite get my head around is that um, Spectrum, which is a cable and internet provider over here, uh, also does the occasional original series and they have just put out a uh reboot relaunch or continuation whatever you want to say uh, call it of mad about you which okay. uh, uh it's a perfectly fine sitcom from the 90s paul riser and helen hunt were very very good in it not a show that necessarily people were clamoring for the return of um mm. definitely had its its fans definitely was very popular but not in the same kind of tier as, you know, your Will and Grace, you know, which mm-hmm. just came back as well, or Friends, which is always kind of pointed to as something that could come back. Um, I very much I very much see it in that kind of Dharma and Greg type tier. <laughs> yes. Yeah, or is it, definitely. I think maybe it was more successful than Dharma and Greg, surely. It was more successful than Dharma and Greg, and it had probably had a more of an impact just purely because of the fact it shared a castmate with Friends in Lisa Kudrow, who would... Uh. Who played her twin sister Ursula on Mad About You, and that's why there's that one episode of Friends where Helen Hunt and someone else from Mad About You come into Central Park and start acting really weird towards Phoebe, which as a kid I found baffling. It was <laughs> such a it was such a weird scene that I had no broader context for. But if you're thinking, oh, these two shows aired on the same network on the same night, and she was in both, of course, it makes sense that they would have this crossover moment. Uh, and they both take place in New York, obviously. But yeah, that was um, yeah. But so, so you know, I'd, I'd say it's probably like a solid mid-tier show. But it's like it's not one that you would immediately think needs needs to be brought back. Uh, Quibi, which is a new streaming service that people don't seem to think exists, but keeps sending out press releases of shows they're making, um, has just announced that they're bringing back Reno Nine One One. It's another mm. one. And the cast of Reno 911 have gone on to tremendous success in other things. They're all wildly successful actors, writers, performers in their own right. Still seems very weird that someone would decide that now is the time to bring back that show. And then that kind of is, that's that's kind of the stage we're in now. You have the huge mega streaming services that, you know, kind of are battling against each other for their supremacy when it comes to original stuff but also in terms of like catalogs uh, i find it very funny here that the james bond films seem to go from different streaming service different streaming service once every like three months <laughs> they're on hulu now they were on netflix they'll be on amazon i'm sure soon uh they just keep bouncing around um but also 
are just like squeezing out all of these smaller boutique ones so you you get something like the criterion channel which i hope will continue on because it's obviously got a, a solid brand behind it but obviously um its predecessor filmstruck wasn't saved by being kind of like a reasonably successful but still small and focused streaming service um that you're definitely in a stage now where the the more smaller idiosyncratic streaming says CISO be another one I guess the mm-hmm. comedy the comedy uh, network streaming service that was sorry the comedy comma network not not comedy network um, <laughs> but uh, you know like the NBC comedy app that existed for about six months and was inescapable on every podcast because every podcast <laughs> got a show and then mm-hmm. completely folded. You know those those smaller, more niche ones. They you you're right. There's just no no room for them. Although any smaller pr- programs uh, service that's coming out now, they do seem to be thinking, what's the way that we can get attention for stuff? Oh, let's revive some old property that people sort of remember. Mm. Uh, and the viability of that's probably questionable. Mm. I think in terms of um peak tv and going beyond peak tv i think my um breaking point was when someone said to me oh did you see this show it was or i I read it like it was a list of the best tv shows of the year i think it was last year and it was a show that i'd never heard of that no one i had spoken to uh had seen um that came out on facebook (laughs) it was the uh was it sorry for your loss Yes, yeah. I've heard of it, but I yeah. nev- I don't know how you watch Facebook TV. <laughs> yeah, what do I do? Do I uh, what do I I mean I don't even have a Facebook account anymore. Does that preclude mm. me from <laughs> from enjoying this piece of culture? Yeah. Do you have to pay? I don't know. Is it a separate mm. app you have to download? It's yeah, it's it's really weird. I get the feeling that that show has been renewed a bunch of times and <laughs> kind of keeps going because um some people are watching it, possibly just bots, possibly mm. just Facebook employees to keep the numbers up. Mm, yeah. When asked about it, I would always sound like a Baz Bambergoy review by saying, <laughs> five stars, can't wait to see it. <laughs> that's, that's my uh, review of that. I mean, I've, I mean, obviously it's gone now, like the season one and two or whatever has happened. And like, mm. where does that exist now? Do I have to like... Yeah. Do I have to accept my mum's friend request to see it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a baffling thing. That that's definitely one of the ones where I definitely felt there's just too much. There's too much TV that you have to contend with stuff that's just on social network, uh, st- uh, social networking sites, and maybe very good. But like, even just two or three years ago, when it was just kind of like oh, there's like 50 really great shows across all of these different cable networks, that still felt like pretty untenable to mm. keep up with absolutely everything that was coming out. And the now, even as the number of avenues kind of contract in, in some ways in some of these smaller services uh, collapse or get gobbled up by the larger ones, it still feels like the constant deluge of content means that there's maybe like five tv shows that really hit every year and most of the streaming services don't really seem that good at uh generating them like when you think when i think on the last year specifically but also over the last couple of years i think it also uh holds true for like hbo 
seem to be the kings at generating shows that get a lot of attention, even if they don't get high ratings. Like this year, I think about like that was that two and a half month stretch where Twitter was nothing but succession. And mm. that's not a show that gets huge ratings in the US. Uh, it's probably one of HBO's lower rated shows, but everyone was talking about it. Everyone was making memes about it. It was this thing that really kind of caught the public eye. And I think a large part of that was down to the fact that it was a show airing in a fairly traditional way on a, you know, a network that is you know pretty much set in its ways about how it releases its shows and which benefited from the weeks of discussion in between to go back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, the movement away from the binge model. And it does feel as if you've gone through this period of like, tremendous disruption in terms of netflix being like hey there's this new way to watch television everyone kind of getting used to it and then when you realize like you know binging obviously does have a um a connection to to eating and if you binge too much you make yourself sick mm-hmm. and that has i think that has kind of become true of a lot of the culture in some ways a lot of people you know got used to the idea oh this show comes out you watch it all in the the space of a single night or over a single weekend but then, like you say, it makes no, it finds no purchase in the consciousness for the most part. And the, the the shows over the last year or the last couple of years that really seemed to become phenomena, um, like like Game of Thrones, obviously is kind of like the biggest one, the, the kind of the undeniable decade-spanning hit, or this just in the last couple of months, I mean, like Watchmen, that those really benefit from the fact that at at its core serialized storytelling which is what television is benefits from being released in a serialized way as opposed mm-hmm. to being presented with oh this is a thing that's presented to you in a single lump as a as like a novel except it's not paced like a novel it's paced like a bunch of short stories but it's all the same characters which i think we don't really have a method of uh consuming that that type of culture that really functions and works yes i concur and I wonder whether we'll get to the point where we have basically two streaming services that have absorbed all the others mm. and they both cost an extortionate amount of money. And, you know, I mean, I'm I'm really surprised that all of the studios don't have their own streaming services um, or whether there's just not anything in that. Because we've seen definitely over the last year or 18 months so much content being dropped from streaming services, especially old stuff. Mm. Um, in favor of original content, yeah. Um, because why? Why would they pay some for someone else's content for you to watch it on theirs? Um, where they could just make their own content that's exclusive that will drive you to the platform. Um, and I myself, I haven't mentioned at the top of the show, trying to finish my you know viewing challenge this year of watching uh, fifty-two movies from the golden age of Hollywood. That is in, that is proved incredibly difficult using streaming services. It proves incredible difficult, incredibly difficult. Full stop. Um, and you know, if something else is a a, a thread that has um, come out of our time as a show is the decline of physical media, yeah. and there's never been. A, a better um you know need the, i've really needed physical media this year to get a lot of those older films watched because you know netflix is pretty shocking um mm. you know it's it must have like a few dozen movies made before the 1970s uh, on its on its services uh, obviously amazon's got everything but like you 
obviously pay to rent those movies if it's not included with Prime. And for reasons that I can't fathom, it is more expensive to rent a movie from the 1940s uh, in standard definition than it is to rent a new release, which is fucking mad. Mm. Um, so I'm, yeah, and I found it very frustrating. So I've had to rely on kind of borrowing DVDs off people, my own collection that that is, you know, greatly reduced because I sold a lot of it before I went traveling. Um, and also, you know, the public library has still holds a big DVD collection and it's hard to find older titles. And I hate the idea that older films are being shuffled out because there's no financial benefit to holding them um, mm. to the main the main distributors of culture to our eyeballs. Yeah, I think I can definitely remember the moment when Netflix made that shift away from older movies, like very sharply, because I remember when I first moved over to the US, um, I was living with my, my parents and they had the Netflix streaming account. So I was often, you know, using that to watch movies. And when they first, you know, had that service, there was like a wealth of older movies on there that I hadn't seen. And it was stuff that really did run the gamut of like the entire history of cinema. I watched uh, Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabuse the Gambler <laughs> all four hours of it on Netflix. And like like you say, now there's just like slim pickings in terms of the original, uh, the, of the um, the classic Hollywood stuff on there or in terms of, there's, it's a little better in terms of world cinema, I guess. Mm. But even Ironically, then, there are no films starring slim pickings. Yeah. <laughs> it's Slim Pickens for Slim Pickens movies. <laughs> when is there going to be a Slim Pickens streaming service? That's what we really want to know. That is all we want. It was, yeah, there was definitely like a point, it was probably about 2013, 2014, where they did their first major push for original content and their first major purge of the older stuff. And it really was like night and day. It's like, oh, this is this feels like a different service to what it was before. But partly as they updated the interface, and that obviously affects a little bit in terms of how easy or hard it is to find stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there was definitely like this this real kind of like, oh, like Netflix is is changing and becoming a very different thing, and and all streaming services kind of gone that way a little bit as well. Hulu for for a long time was like the home of the Criterion Collection, and so for a, for a number of years that was where you would go to watch like all these wonderful old movies and just all these movies from around the world, and then that you know their license with them expired, so that they moved to Filmstruck and now they've got their own channel. So there is this real sense that you know the the history of cinema in some ways is kind of being left out in the cold with the new, the new age of streaming. And I, I think it is, you know, I think there are some studios that would probably want to, that have experimented with their own kind of like streaming stuff or their own online video stuff. I remember a couple of years ago, we were very excited on this show when the Paramount Vault channel debuted on YouTube, which was a, channel that just had full 
movies from the Paramount archive that you could watch. And it was an officially sanctioned thing. It didn't cost you anything. You could just sit there and watch all of 1901 if you wanted on YouTube. And uh, I went there and looked at that channel again recently because I was like, oh, yeah, what happened with that? And now it's like, here's a clip from Dirty Dancing. You know, it's just like a bunch of stuff pointing to old Paramount movies. And I think that it is just a case that it's not really that profitable for studios to really get into that sort of stuff unless they have nothing but kind of like huge banger uh ips in the way that obviously disney have because they bought them all um like it's very i think it's very very hard for individual studios to really justify the cost of setting up the infrastructure for their own streaming service and having it be you know like presumably subscription based Mm. yeah what a, yeah, what a weird world we've inherited. It just seems to be like all this older stuff is being scrubbed out. Um, and to, as well, we talk about Disney being um, one of our main preoccupations in the last eight years, but the recent acquisition of 20th Century Fox and the news that they don't aren't particularly keen on allowing anyone to show um, its Fox titles in rep cinemas um mm. is a well it's not a great development is it no especially because like the rules for it seem very arcane it's like oh we you can't show it if you are a rep cinema that also shows new movies because then it's potentially competing against like disney product but like i think there's very few like pure rep cinemas in the u.s at this point mm. like pretty much any of them will like show a mixture like they'll show uh a, a rep a couple of reps uh screenings on the weekends and the rest of the time it's like okay we need to show something that you know people want to see because it's new so it feels like it shuts out a lot of people uh, a lot of a lot of theaters from being able to show stuff like you know alien a movie that is pretty much constantly in rotation on the rep circuit because it's a classic and people love to see it and you're pretty much guaranteed to fill out a a crowd bit or you know maybe the most famous movie in terms of you know it's it's afterlife being sustained by rep cinemas um the rocky horror picture show which mm-hmm. is something that exists purely because the cult of it um lasted so much from people going to screenings of it that uh, were put on by all these smaller cinemas and yeah it's it's, it's an absolute uh, travesty that this is being applied to all of these movies that Disney didn't make they just happen to now own mm, yeah it is a real purge of n- non original Disney content and it seems yeah it's it's not really it, it seems to have happened very quickly hasn't it like when Disney bought Lucasfilm in 2014 about about then, yeah. And did they have Marvel before that? Yeah, they bought after? Marvel. They bought Marvel in, I want to say 2011, 2011, mm-hmm. 2012, because I think, um, like the first four or five of the MCU movies were produced when it was just like Paramount and mm-hmm. then uh, Paramount distributing it, and then from like the Avengers on. Or maybe from Thor on, they were Disney properties. Because mm. they were talking about in the space of you know half a decade or or a decade in 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 this sense, you're talking about one company buying up 
you know the 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 highest grossing movie franchises and the rights to produce those and the ip and all that stuff um and yeah that that is just a last decade development disney mm. weren't particularly that bothered with acquisitions in the previous decade i don't think it was just pixar really mm. like they they bought pixar in 2006 or so but they, they already cars. distributed their stuff right yeah so that like was from more, the off yeah so that was more just kind of being like okay this is not just a distribution exclusivity deal it's like we actually own you mm-hmm. so yeah i mean it's yeah it that has become obviously they were a big company before one of the biggest <laughs> you could uh, think of uh, one of the most ubiquitous and recognizable brands in the world um but it has has been in the last last decade that they have really gone for you know full absorption monopoly mode and it's it, it's kind of weird because we've talked to like you know there's never been a better time to be like you know a fan of comic book movies or a fan of star wars movies but really it's only a good time if you like those films because everything else is getting shot out yeah particularly if you talk about you know obviously we talked a little bit about uh, martin scorsese and the irishman but like the irishman as a movie is like that's a movie that you could easily see being made 15 years ago and getting a fairly wide release Mm mm-hmm uh, so the- theatrical release rather obviously it had a bit of a theatrical release over here but now it's pretty much impossible to imagine any studio taking a punt on that and putting it in theatres it only exists because Netflix want the prestige of working with Martin Scorsese and Martin Scorsese is like yeah sure I'll, I'll take $150 million from you to make this movie I've been trying to make for the better part of a decade um, but it is, it's a sad state of affairs that a lot of these more like modest movies that used to be the bread and butter of a lot of studios now don't exist at all like whole genres have just been completely excluded from from cinemas like rom-coms like apart from the occasional crazy rich asians or bridesmaids like for the most part they have become the domain of like indie comedies and art house stuff or or netflix you know with um the aforementioned uh, always be my maybe and that's just something quite quite sad about that that, that, that these movies that worked for kind of a big seg- section of the audience of people who go to the cinema now don't exist there anymore and that artists who honed their craft making movies for adults now kind of really struggle and, and at the same time you know one of the big stories of the last couple of weeks has been original movies aimed at adult audiences doing pretty well at the box office like Ford versus Ferrari or Knives Out you know there's these these bunch of movies that are clearly quite obviously geared to a non superhero movie Marvel Disney fan uh, you know audience doing really well so it's clear that those people are there and they'll happily go and see a movie and every year there are these stories of these movies that do pretty well against expectations but like most of the studios aren't really interested in uh you know a solid a solid double when they could get a grand slam in the form of a a blockbuster that makes you know a billion dollars worldwide but cost you like 700 million dollars to make and market so you don't make that much money off it in the end Mm. it's weird as well in terms of box office since we've been going when we started there was only one film that had crossed the billion dollar mark 
Mm. Um, was it two? Yeah. Was it Ava- Avatar had crossed it? I think because what that was two thousand ten, wasn't it? When we when we started, Titanic had done it in ninety seven. Avatar did it in two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say uh, also one of the Lord of the Rings had the third Lord of the Rings had the second right. Pirates of the Caribbean movie. There was like a very it was a very it was a very select through few like maybe five or six movies had done it, and now that number has increased significantly. Yeah, I looked at the um, the top ten grossing films of this year, and I think it looked from what number ten had made that you're probably talking 13, 14 films released this year across a billion. Which is absolute that that would have been unthinkable <laughs> in mm. 2011 that, that 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 would happen. A large part of that is the growth of the global box office. Obviously, China's become very important over recent years, and I think that the um, the aesthetic and storytelling choices of Hollywood movies have kind of moved to in a direction where they try and appeal to the biggest global audience. There's not a huge amount of cultural specificity anymore in a lot of blockbusters and they're you know in the in the case of the marvel movies their advantage is that they have now created their own little you know self-contained universe where they don't really have to worry too much about contemporary references but but there is definitely a sense that all of these movies that have been made that have made a billion dollars by and large have done so because they are just like aiming for the biggest possible audience and are in some ways trying not to be Hollywood movies in the sense that they're only aiming at a domestic audience, whereas as recently as 10 years ago, the exact opposite was true. Like, the idea was, uh, the foreign box office is nice, but you don't really get to take home too much of it, and it's not big enough. What you really need to do is focus on, well, well the film does at home. But, you know, the, the conventional wisdom on that has pretty much completely reversed at this point. Hmm. What other big box office trends have we have we seen in our lifetime? Uh, one of the ones I was just just thinking of is like how quickly like the found footage craze completely died out. <laughs> yeah, like, that, that bubble burst pretty pretty quick, and it seemed to be inflating very slowly. Yeah, because it was like obviously you had the the par- the first paranormal activity was like uh, like a dam. Uh, breaking and it just kind of like was this huge thing for a couple of years where pretty much every other week it seemed there would be some fan footage horror movie that would be made for like 50 uh for like five hundred thousand dollars or whatever and it would make 20 million or, or far more and everyone would be making a huge amount of money off of it but like it was it was really interesting thinking back on it how quickly audiences just lost all uh, interest in that as a stylistic choice because you know although I think a lot of people did interesting things with found footage and it's certainly something that has a lot of potential it definitely was something where the same like five or six tricks kept getting used over and over again and people kind of got bored with them but it was really that that I think we've talked about this in the past that like one of the reasons why horror i find to be such a fascinating genre is it is so reactive in that way that it can because the movie is so cheap and quick to make that you can make them you can react to a trend or a hit super duper quickly and uh, it will burn itself out naturally and audiences will move on but you know it it at least you know it the craze will only last like three or four years and then they'll move on to you know something else same really kind of happened with the 
um, torture porn genre. Like, that only really was at its peak for, like, five or six years, maybe. But that was that was the previous decade, obviously. But, um, yeah, that, that that's one that I just kind of thought of. Uh, I think also it relates to that, the rise of Blumhouse, I think, has been really interesting over the last couple of years. Mm. And which has morphed into what people have seem to briefly call elevated horror because mm-hmm. get out won an Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that's one I I personally find very intriguing and kind of hopeful because obviously like uh, Jason Blum and his his team have found a very successful model, you know, you make small interesting horror movies that don't cost a huge amount of money so that even if they don't break out you're you're fine financially but if they do break out then you're guaranteed a, a really good solid return but also they're kind of a good proving ground for for young filmmakers like you say you know jordan peele you know they they let him do what he wanted to get out and it was a massive hit probably still their biggest hit and it you know has paid dividends for them and for him because obviously he's now a hugely established figure in hollywood filmmaking uh also you it's interesting seeing recently how they have been handed the reins to the universal um monsters um franchise universe whatever you want to call it mm, where... how can we not talk about the dark the dark <laughs> the dark... Uh, dark universe surely yes. that was a a cataclysmic event in the, uh, the last <laughs> eight years i i kind of think it, it was but we'll uh we'll, we'll get to that in a second but that, that was the, it was definitely like you know i saw the trailer the other day for their new version of the invisible man starring uh, elizabeth moss and not as the invisible man obviously um but mm-hmm. as the person being menaced by the invisible man and it's kind of like you know after they had tried to do a new shared universe of all of their universal monsters uh, and it had <laughs> flamed out quite spectacularly oh it did it, it was interesting thinking, oh, they basically said to Jason Blum, hey, you're the guy who's made us a shit ton of money with all the stuff we've distributed, where you make stuff really small, but really effective and with a great, you know, trailer and kind of good actors. Why don't you do that for like all of these, uh, this IP that we have that we don't have a clue what to do with? And he went, yeah, sure, that sounds good. Um, and, you know, that's to me quite hopeful that maybe other studios will follow suit that after trying so hard and failing so badly to replicate the sense the the success of the mcu which is obviously what the the dark universe was trying to do what the dc universe was trying to do what the spider-man movies were trying to do the amazing spider-man movies before they um went back and started working with disney like i feel like that was one of the really big trends Trends that wasn't in some respects, but certainly was a thing that like deranged studio filmmaking for several years was everyone trying to do their own MCU mm. and no one really succeeding at it. Mm. And with the MCU being the dominant cultural force of um of our time. Um I think yes. we we arrived on the scene two years into it, I think. Um which uh, must three have been... years three years into it yeah. um and it went on to be something that we viewed with suspicion <laughs> um i famously proclaimed that the avengers would be a surefire bomb um <laughs> uh, in much the same way that i proclaimed that deadpool wouldn't do any business mm. um but yeah it was it has become 
something that every single studio, like you say, is trying to emulate and without any real success. Um, but the the problem is, is that the, the people who are trying to do it, most notably DC, um, who are, you know, Marvel's equivalent, have made such a hash of what they've tried. They have the tools and the material to do it, but they have, yeah, they've done a terrible job. Yeah, until they suddenly decided, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we shouldn't try and connect all of these stories. Maybe it's fine if they're all their own separate thing. And that has led them to know, you know, obviously Wonder Woman was a, was a big success for them following that model. Uh, Aquaman was shockingly huge. Um mm-hmm. Uh, Joker obviously uh, has been a huge success the new Batman movie they're working on sounds quite interesting in terms of the, the people they've, they're they casting in it uh, so clearly after wasting sort of like half a decade trying to do the, the MCU thing of like okay we introduce all these characters in separate movies and then we get them together for a, a crossover event but completely hashing it up and being like okay we'll introduce two of these characters and then or three of these characters and then kind of cram the other characters into the crossover event so no one knows who they are or really cares that much they have found a model that works for them um sony as well yeah really messed it up with their their two spider-man movies where the first one was kind of a average-ish like reboot of the franchise and you know a decent-ish take on the character and then by the second one they were like oh if this one's successful we're going to do a sinister six movies and it's going to be littered with this movie's going to be littered with easter eggs of all of the dozens of spider-man related movies we're going to make and it was you know that film made less than the previous one hardly anyone liked it and it definitely felt like they had completely squandered whatever opportunity they had had so I think I think that the the success of the MCU and everyone's inability to copy it, I think probably really points to I think that's probably one of the biggest stories from a block box office point of view. Not merely because Disney have gobbled up so much of the revenue, but because everyone followed them down the rabbit hole and wasted so much time and money that they didn't really have the chance to establish their own alternatives. Mm. And that this so I really feel as if Disney kind of like just like completely uh, knocked the industry off its off its axis with the success of the Avengers and uh, the subsequent movies. Mm, yeah, the, I think the last thing I want to talk about in uh, this little kind of reflective episode is where we leave or where I leave certainly the state of the discourse. Um, in the film world, because I think one of the big cultural moments of the last decade, I'll call it decade, which had an effect, or quite a profound effect, which people don't seem to fully appreciate, was Gamergate. And I feel like we have seen the echoes of Gamergate resonate through the film discourse and we live in a kind of a time now where you know with the the whole toxic uh nature of online relations between people and and mm. and interactions with culture um is reaching the stage where it's considered 
everyday and mundane and just par for the course, which is something that, I mean, we always knew that, you know, certain corners of the internet could be um, pretty grim, but Mm -hmm. it's like most of the internet now. And I feel like it's affecting more moderate film discourse. The idea that, you know, marriage story came out on Friday and obviously Netflix, it's available to everyone who's got a subscription. So a lot of people have seen it and just the response to it online has been pretty nuts. I mean, obviously it's, there's a lot of fun because obviously it becomes a meme (laughs) because everything Mm -hmm. does. And, you know, you see it and, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, it must be fairly baffling, but then also it connects to something that you have seen. And all of a sudden you've got some connection with it just because someone's used its framework for a, a kind of a funny gag. But, you know, just the frequency of terrible takes on modern <laughs> culture that is the people seem to be like i mean like when we when we both started this this podcast we both had a blog right mm-hmm. i mean you were way more dedicated to yours than i was and i personally didn't particularly enjoy doing it um but i feel like you know you have to think about what you wanted to do and then write an article about it or whatever and then press publish and it was out there whereas now you just instantly knee-jerk respond with any old shit and then all of a sudden you're on a side of something Mm, yeah and and it feels so reductive and like so unhealthy that like honestly like um i really enjoy doing this show and like i really enjoy speaking to you and I've, i've pretty much loved every minute of of doing this show and i you know really have enjoyed being a podcaster for this long but this year, stuff like the Martin Scorsese versus Marvel nonsense, the the toxic Star Wars fandom and the release of the Snyder Cut business <laughs> has really made me not want to be a part of it. It's made mm. me really want to be like, I'm kind of almost embarrassed to be part of this shit. Like, and it's whilst I feel like you and I are more considered with our, our kind of output and what we talk about and how we talk about things, like it's very easy to get like kind of worn down by it. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I definitely uh, agree. I feel like on the one hand, obviously blood, the growth of Twitter and social media and all these sort of things really do, I do think in some ways they have enriched the discourse in that lots of people of with very different backgrounds and very different perspectives are now able to uh, discuss movies in ways that are in certain are not the ways that necessarily I or, or people like me would discuss them. Um, if I look at in this year in particular, uh, I lot I read a lot of very good. Um, reviews by trans critics of the movie Alita Battle Angel which mm-hmm. uh, is a movie that I, I watched and I, I ended up very very enjoying and I thought was, was a really really good movie but I obviously did not get the same experience out of it that, that they did and, and similar to a movie that I did not like um, Ari Aster's Midsummer. I, I read uh, a lot of very good criticism and a lot of very good uh, responses from, from trans critics talking about how much that they responded to that and um, that, I think, has been kind of a net positive, that there are people out there who uh, come from decidedly different backgrounds to the number of people who historically have uh, 
dominated the discussion of these movies. Uh, at the same time, the sheer volume of takes, the sheer volume of opinion, <laughs> in much the same way as the sheer volume of content, it gets overwhelming. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. do feel as if the problem as well is that opinion can calcify very, very quickly and opinion on a movie can sometimes be in place long before you have a chance to see a movie, like opinion of a movie coming out of a film festival or whatever. By the time it comes out, it becomes a cause celeb or it becomes something to be like hated and destroyed. And that can be very, that can be very tiring, very wearying as well. I think it, it, it can obliterate nuance uh, in a way that certainly I find very uh, aggravating because that's like what I like about movies is how a lot of the time they're a lot of the best movies, a lot of my favorite movies are movies that don't necessarily fit into a comfy little box that they have elements of them that are difficult to square in some way. Maybe there are elements of them that are problematic Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there are elements of them that you know contradict other elements and you have to kind of square those ideas in your head and, and and that's what's exciting about movies is like the tension between all of these different elements that go into it and sometimes on Twitter that can just get that that just doesn't exist because like you say people feel like they have to take a side on, on something being pro or pro anti something and that feels like something that has really increased in the last five or six years or so and i'm not sure if i could necessarily think of an inflection point the way that i kind of think about it is that it kind of feels like every day is oscar season now mm-hmm. because um that was, that was something that i you know you really get into with oscar season i think i really enjoy about oscar season as much as i complain about it and as much as you know i feel it can be very reductive it is very fun when everyone suddenly becomes really invested in movies and which movies are going to win the big prize because um movies are not as central to the culture as maybe they were in the like the 90s and the early 2000s certainly not as much as they were in like the 70s and 80s um and it can be nice when that focus suddenly shifts to the question of what movie's going to win best picture and it can be fun to just really rag on like the revenant for <laughs> for for weeks on end um or or whatever to or you know like seeing everyone just be just totally aghast at green book or bohemian rhapsody but it really does feel as if that's kind of the tenor that then continues out the rest of the year you don't really get a time to really relax everyone has to have a um razor sharp and piercing and scorching take on like happy death day to you or something you know whatever the the film that week is and uh yeah i i can find that uh a little tiring i think i'm reasonably able to tune a lot of it out and like i think i follow enough people who are like still very much in the hey it's fun to talk about movies kind of way and who want to have a discussion about movies in a way that's reasonably nuanced but it, it definitely yeah there, there definitely has over the last 10 years of the show been a uh sanding off of the corners of the discourse uh mm. i think it's it's fair to say and even though there are 
plenty of wonderful critics out there people i love reading uh publications that really do value a lot of of uh, do do publish a lot of great writing i really feel that like little white lies has really come into their own over the last couple of years partly in no small part because they do have you know kind of fairly diverse writers writing for them the the broader discussion uh often kind of feels like it has become overly simplified uh in ways that aren't terribly helpful to the discussion of and and wider appreciation of art mm, yeah yeah absolutely the the very last thing i want to talk about ed and it's gonna be very brief very brief is i'd like to bring to your attention like i wanted to know if you remembered some great shot reverse shot moments that we had to cut out because <laughs> i thought they were funny and you uh, I, or I was, it was based on a complete misunderstanding and you in a complete shocked and baffled state had to scrabble around trying to like prove me either right or wrong. So the first <laughs> instance you will probably remember is when I was nearly 100% sure that Tina Fey had had a baby with Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> do you, do you remember this? And I do remember this. We, yeah. we had, we were having a conversation about something else and then I just brought it up. I just dropped it in and they say, well, yeah, we just got a kid with Harvey Weinstein or whatever. And then you were just like, what? what? <laughs> and I think you had to go and get her book. <laughs> and I was frantically Googling like Harvey Weinstein, Tina Fey kid. And I do not know for the life of me where I got that information, but I decided to just relay it as fact into the, and obviously it's not true. Um, yeah, and was it's not even a rumor that I'm like <laughs> like perpetuating. It was just me being totally wrong because I once saw both of their names at the same time. Um, <laughs> I completely got the wrong end of the stick. And then I think my favorite all time shot reverse shot moment, which never made it to air, was I thought it would be funny, and we were talking about I can't remember who it was. I think it was Hugh Jackman, mm-hmm. and and he'd been interviewed on the red carpet for something, and I, I don't know whether he'd said something that was like either funny or and it it made the news or whatever and then i said did you see that you know they've just said that he shouted white power on the on the red carpet <laughs> <laughs> and you were like what and I, and then i had to kind of explain it and then it wasn't funny at all because you <laughs> you thought that Hugh Jackman had genuinely shouted white power on the red carpet <laughs> of like i don't know whatever film it was he was promoting at that time and yeah we were just like oh well i, I suppose we're gonna cut that out because that that was that wasn't even like a you know like a tangent it was just idiocy. <laughs> and it, it was just like and you were like what really yeah uh, i don't know whether that says more about your gullibility or whether you know or how deadpan i was in saying it or just what i thought hugh jackman would say at a red carpet event <laughs> mm. i i do not i do not remember that particular instance but uh that does that does sound like um yeah something that i would believe not necessarily hugh jackman would say but like you would dead you are very very good at deadpanning <laughs> and I, that definitely seems like something i'd be like wait what <laughs> and just like feel like I would have to quickly like grab my phone and start googling to see like what the hell had happened and if he had completely blown up his whole career. Mm. <laughs> but I, I I do very clearly remember the Tina Fey yeah. Harvey Weinstein one. 
Hugh Jackman shouts white power at Tina Fey and Harvey Weinstein's baby shower. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe what it was. But yeah, I'd just like to say that they don't have a kid together and Hugh Jackman in no way endorses white supremacy. <laughs> uh, my favourite uh, case of, it was b- back when you edited the show, of you cutting out something that I said that actually was 100% correct, <laughs> which was the in the like, literally the second or third episode we got into the discussion of Roger Avery and I talked about the fact that he went to prison for manslaughter <laughs> and you you and I believe Adam, Adam Batty, I think it was when we were all still like trying to do the show with, with uh, three people getting together in one location were both aghast and insisted I was wrong, but that is entirely true. He did oh, go the, to... the the guy who co-wrote Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, he I believe he ran someone over with his car. <laughs> mm, that doesn't sound true to me. Uh, but that, that was what I remember being like at the time you guys being like we're just going to have to take that out because that doesn't sound true yeah. <laughs> then going uh, on and being like I love that you're bringing right. it up now <laughs> eight, eight <laughs> years later you've been waiting on that waiting on it but yeah there's also been a lot of episodes that just like didn't We've I think in the kind of middle stretch of the show we had a lot of technical issues maybe the kind of the first quarter of the show I think we probably lost about there's probably ten or fifteen lost episodes floating around yeah, somewhere. Yeah, def- there's definitely ones we def we never did a with Lael and I episode. That was the, no. that was our white whale. Like we went for a period of time where we thought, oh, let's do um, a series of episodes where we both recommend a movie and say, oh, like you know, this is a movie that I love, but you've never watched. Why don't you watch it? And then we'll talk about it. And I'm pretty sure we did like three attempts at that one. And mm-hmm. like uh, one time, like the file was corrupted. Another time, I'm pretty sure I had a power cut halfway through recording. Mm-hmm. And so we lost all of that. And another one, there was just something else that completely failed. And we just said, this is destined not to happen <laughs> because mm-hmm. everything is conspiring against us for it not to uh, not to occur, which is a shame because that was uh, all three times that episode was very fun. <laughs> mm. I think we have also um, we had a couple of uh, episode ideas that were great ideas in principle, but would have mm-hmm. been very poor in practice. We wanted we had an idea we were going to do we did like a sex, drugs, and rock and roll um, trio, didn't yes. we? Um, yeah. And then we were kind of trying to think of other things to do, and we said, well, why don't we do an episode on alcohol where we're drunk mm-hmm. through it and we realize very quickly there aren't really that many movies that aren't really depressing <laughs> about alcohol and yeah b is incredibly boring listening to drunk people talk i did like the idea we had where the first half would be sober and mm. then we would stop the recording go to a pub <laughs> just get really rat-assed and then come back and do the second half but um I I I kind of imagine we would have just like got drunk and forgotten to record the second half. Mm, I feel possibly. like that's how that would have gone. And we also had a an idea to do a kind of a my dinner with Andre style episode where you and I would be radio mic'd and go out for dinner and just talk. <laughs> and then we thought, yeah. well, that's a really clever, really good episode. But then we we're like, why don't we just talk? <laughs> why don't we just yeah. go out for dinner? <laughs> really stupid. <laughs> Yeah, and just like the amount of technical, because you would have had to like borrow the equipment from someone mm. and be like, okay, we'll take this very expensive equipment to make this thing. And like you said, you could just talk. <laughs> just, talk just without having to eat would be a really good idea. 
Oh yeah, and, and if if anything over the last like ten years of podcasting has been demonstrated, it's that people love to hear people talk while they're eating. Mm. <laughs> that doesn't get people complaining. <laughs> yeah, and and realistically, the the episode would have been like two hours long. We'd, we'd have had three courses, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We don't mess around after eights. Um, yeah. <laughs> my my favorite technical fuck up was entirely on my part, and I don't know if i ever told you this or not it's been a while now but we it was early on in our um when we started doing this over skype and when i started editing the show mm-hmm. and we did our preview i want to say our autumn winter preview uh, it's probably 2013 2014 maybe and uh you sent me your file i was editing it together and then you know you garage band you're chopping and changing things around and moving things and i completely deleted half of yours no sorry Mm -hmm. i deleted half i completely deleted half of mine Mm -hmm. and uh i just re-recorded all of my bits (laughs) (laughs) so there is one episode where it's entirely your original recording half of my original recording and then the second half of it is just me being like trying to remember what I said that would make sense in relation to your then then also make sense in relation to your replies. And honestly, it's the most impressive bit of editing I've ever done because I don't think anyone's ever realised that that's what's happening in that episode. It sounds absolutely flawless. Mm. But it was probably the most stressed I've ever been. Because also those episodes, you know, they're so long. You know, like they usually would run like two and two hours or something like that they're such uh, they require so much research the thought of having to be like <laughs> we've got to do this all again was just mm. too much uh, i also really enjoy <laughs> um one of our end of year spe- i think it was the 2012 end of year special where we were doing our top 10 and i think due to a technical issue we had to stop halfway through and <laughs> The only time we could record the second half was super early in the morning, my time. Mm-hmm. And if people listen to that episode, it goes from us being like really kind of upbeat and chatting and like, haha, it's having fun to them me being like, yeah, once upon a time in Anatolia, it's <laughs> this Turkish movie. I'm just, I'm just so clearly exhausted and so clearly enthralled out of bed and there was nothing that could be done to fix it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I, and I, I remember that as well. And you were like, yeah, we'll just we'll just do it tomorrow. And I was like, if I had to do one thing at six in the morning, it wouldn't be talk about Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. <laughs> Which, yeah. I, mean, it's a, it's, I mean, it's a good movie, but Jesus Wonderful Christ. Movie. It's very long and slow. And I mm. want to say I probably fell asleep whilst watching it because it just kind of lulled you in. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Um, do you have a favourite episode that we've done? Because I've got a couple. I think... I think one of my all-time... I mean, obviously, there was the Twiathlon, which we, <laughs> which, in which we watched all of the Twilight movies that were available at that time. Um, that was, i say, really fun. It was fun for the first two movies. Um, mm. And then the films became too competent and boring. Um, yeah. And it really then became an endurance test after that. But um, I personally really loved the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend episode we did with Emily. That was yes. real fun because I mean that was before she came on kind of full time I guess, um, yeah. and it was a just a really lovely 
because it was we were all celebrating a show that we all really loved as well and it was really just really cool to go through and it really became a slightly indulgent episode in the sense that it wasn't actually wasn't much insight going on it was just us talking about songs we liked from it and like mm. reenacting bits from the show which i thought was really lovely yes that that's definitely up there for me i I, I, you mentioned earlier, I did really enjoy the sex, drugs and rock and roll kind of like trilogy. I liked the idea of us kind of trying to think of things that relate to those themes. And I remember those ones being super fun. Uh, I, I really enjoyed our entire year long alternate 100 project. Oh, that was good. That was pretty where good. We just like picked 10 films. We were going to talk about every episode uh, that we thought were not discussed enough and talked about why they were all really great. I thought that was like a real pure distillation of like a lot of the conversations that we were also having like at the time uh, when you and I first met and we were first kind of like getting to know each other, talking about movies we liked. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those are like getting to geek out about like Stop Making Sense or um, seeing movies for the first time. Because there, there was also like a bit of back and forth between the two of us of like you would say oh, have you ever seen... Uh, what's the one with Anthony Edwards where a nuclear bomb is about to go off? Miracle Mile. Miracle Mile, that's it. Yeah, like Miracle Mile, you think, oh, this this is a great movie. You should you should totally watch this and watching that for the first time and then being like just really bowled over by it and then talking about it on the, the show that week. Like, I feel like that run of, of episodes that we did over that year were super, super fun. And mm. um, I, I also feel like... The previews, I think, are always really fun. The year-long previews, just because there's always, like, a handful of movies there that we're fucking wrong about <laughs> in the, the worst possible way. Like like you talked about Avengers or um, that time when The Great Gatsby kept refusing to come out. Like, every year there'd be one that we just point to and be like, yeah, this isn't going to do anything. And then mm. by the end of the year, it'd be like, oh, yeah, that movie was, like, one of the biggest movies of the year and it's nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Yeah. Well... <laughs> You win some and lose some. Yeah. Um, or was it Monuments Men that we previewed <laughs> in three separate years? Yeah. Because it, it did, I think the first time, I think we were mistaken and it was in development. <laughs> and right, the, yeah. the second time it missed its release date and the third time it was just about to come out. Yeah. God, this, this decade was not kind to Clooney, was it? No, it wasn't. Who was it kind to? <laughs> um, I mean, Jennifer Lawrence had a good go of it. Yeah, like, she had a good time. What, I mean, her... Her career pretty much does chime with the decade because it starts with her getting Oscar nominated for Winter's Bone and then she won for two year two years later. And like obviously her peak probably came with the like massive success of the Hunger Games movies and the early David O. Russell collaborations. But she's I feel like she really did experience kind of a a monumental amount of success and it still hasn't you know it hasn't exactly dissipated or anything she's maybe going through a run where she's not in a huge number of successful movies but you know she's still very young she's mm. still got lots of opportunities to do other stuff yeah she's still like 23 or something it's ridiculous i i had um that thought when i was watching once upon a time in hollywood when dakota fanning showed up in that movie very briefly and I was just kind of thinking, like, oh man, yeah, she's she's not been in anything for a while. It's like it's great to see that she's getting another chance. And then, like, looking at her uh, her IMDb, it's like, oh, she's twenty four. <laughs> she's like, she's got plenty of opportunities for her to 
uh, have kind of other shots in Hollywood uh, movies. Uh, yeah, it's like it's just it's, it's very very weird when someone becomes so successful so young that you kind mm. of feel like you're applying the arc to them that really should only be applied to someone who's like, you know, maybe going for a Mickey Rourke style kind of decade long lo- uh, bender or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's been a great eight years for us. I've had a great yeah. time. Yeah, it's been it's been absolutely wonderful. Obviously, yeah, we we'll be doing our end of year stuff over the next couple of weeks, so mm-hmm. people will still hear you on a couple more episodes of the show. But uh, yeah, I just want to say it's been an absolute blast, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss talking to you about movies every week, mm. uh, it, even even when it's super late at night for you, <laughs> and yeah. kind of uh, hazardous to your health. Mm, yeah, I won't miss the late nights. Um, this is your payback for having to get up at 6am <laughs> once upon a time in Anatolia that one time yeah yeah so we'll not do any recommendations this week I think because like I say long episodes and you've got to be up very early in the morning so mm-hmm. uh, we'll just uh, end this episode by saying uh, if you enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify all the usual places, raters, reviewers and recommend it to your friends, it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from me.